Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R, maybe listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning to you. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well. And you? Very well, thank you. That's good. <laughs> Haven't seen you since uh, the big the big day. The big the big victory, which yeah. was um, well, yeah, Melbourne Football Club winning the, the AFL flag. Um, yes, I'm still very excited. Excellent. As you can see. I've chosen some tunes for you oh, this have morning. You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bron. Hey, uh, thanks very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Uh, yeah, Tim finishing off, finishing off Vital Bits with um, that little piece by Joseph Spence, someone who I had not come across before. So I did love Soulful Bits this morning. Fascinating stuff. Didn't hear it. You can go back and listen, Dr. Beach. I shall. There's a plug for Radio On Demand. Plug for Radio On Demand. I'll get to give a plug, actually, for the Saturday afternoon on Triple R. Yesterday I had a lovely experience of just doing some painting at home and chucked on the radio, had Denise Highland, and then we moved in to Jonathan Bailey and then to Steve Cross, and then we had um, yeah, had lovely Tess and Mia with some tunes before Livewire came on yesterday. It was just, a, just fantastic. And what I like about Saturday afternoon, that not much talk, it's all music. <laughs> As opposed to those shows on Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, Dr. Beach? <laughs> we're going to kick off the uh, the Sunday morning talk shows. The as Sunday sometimes... morning talk shows, which we do love. <laughs> hey, uh, and yeah, just to um, plug Tim, of course, catch him next Sunday and Saturday, six till nine. As always. Yeah. Lord Tim. <laughs> I loved his show yesterday too. It's my Saturday morning treat, sitting up with a cup of tea in bed and listening to Tim. All right, on today's program, we're going to shortly be joined by our baykeeper, Neil Blake. He's going to be talking about um, some work that he's been doing with some students, looking at some possible trends between microplastics distribution in Port Phillip Bay and snapper migration within the bay. But, mm, snappin, snapper, snappin, snapper. Snappin. <laughs> snap. Snappin, snapper. snapper. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to Neil about that. They've been doing some great partnership work uh, also with um, one of the angling clubs. I think it was the uh, Albert Park Angling Club. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to, uh, to uh, Our Neil very own about Neil, that. otherwise known as Captain Trash. Yeah, Captain Trash. We're also going to be speaking with Dave Donnelly uh, from Killer Whales Australia and Dolphin Research Institute about a – we touched on this last week – a new catalogue that the Dolphin Research Institute has put out. It's cataloguing the dolphins that we know in Port Phillip Bay. Individuals? Look, yeah, individuals. Nice. So, you know, you think you've seen one dorsal fin, you've seen them all, but <laughs> not the case. So this is a really great publication. It's nearly 80 pages long, um, having looked through it yesterday. And actually, when you sort of have a look through it, you can actually see the differences in the fin shape. And, and it all kind of makes sense about how these individual animals can be identified by the experts who can look at the dorsal fin and know exactly what they're looking at. Yeah. So it's actually publicly available, but uh, Dave can speak to that. Uh, we're then going to cross to speak with Dr. Dustin Marshall, Professor Dustin Marshall, I should say, from Monash University. Uh, we spoke with Dustin just before Radiothon. We were talking about the phenomenon known as hyperolometry. So this is where fish produce 
uh, eggs in numbers that are disproportionate to their size. So the example that Dustin used last time was that a, a two kilogram snapper doesn't produce twice as many eggs as two one kilogram snapper. Yeah. Um, so we're going to pick that one up. Produces more. Produces more. So um, the the really interesting thing, part to this research is what it means for fisheries management and how it's a relatively newly um, uh, discovered phenomenon, what it means for fisheries management around the world and also what it also means for marine parks management. Very important stuff. Really important stuff. And then... And then we're going to... Um, I'm sticking, we've got Neil talking about plastics kicking it off and then we're going to have a little bit more on plastics. We've got Tanvir Adjel from um, Deakin University who's just got a letter with Peter McCready. They're both at the Blue Carbon Lab at Deakin on um, plastics, encouraging our government to do much more about plastics here. So we've got Tanvir on the um, on the radio and also on the radio, of course, on the phone. Uh, this will be about 10 to last bit of the show talking about that and also some of the work they're doing on um, plastics in coastal regions. Fantastic. Big show. Let's Huge show. get into it. Do you have a weather forecast for us, Dr Beach? I have a weather forecast. I'll just fire up my app here. Uh, it's going to be 12. Well, it's currently, it's going to be 19 degrees today. Beautiful. Uh, a little bit of a sprinkle, but not much more. Um, slight winds. Uh, tomorrow's going to be 19 degrees. Uh, Tuesday, 18 degrees. Just a tiny bit of a sprinkle. Couple, couple of mils, if anything, on those days. Wednesday's going to be nice and sunny. 24 degrees, Bron. Thursday, 24 as well, and then we might kick in with a bit of rain and 20 degrees on Friday. If you're heading out on the waters, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides. And at Point Lonsdale, it's going to be um, it's going to be a high tide at 9.45. Very good. Thank you. We don't have an Antarctica forecast today. No, we don't. No, Cliff um, got in touch a few <coughs> days ago and said he's going to be out and about <laughs> doing work. Quiz question in the age was yesterday was, what was our first base in Antarctica, Australia's? Uh-huh. Oh, good question. I'll I'll just take a stab and say Mawson. Yeah, correct. Well oh, done, Bron. There you go. That was a total stab <laughs> in the dark. Um, we've got a couple of quick bits of news and then we'll um, we'll get into some music. One is a quick plug for the Environmental Film Festival Australia, all online, of course. Kicked off yesterday, runs for about 10 days. So had a look through the program yesterday. There's not much. In fact, I couldn't see anything that was directly marine related, but always happy to give them a plug because of the great films that they show every single year. Some of them are feature length. Some of them are just short. Mm. Some documentaries. And in the past, there have been some which have been dedicated to the... Um to the wet environment, to the aquatic environment. Yeah. So uh, a couple of shout-outs to, to uh, listeners who've reached out to us. One from Tim Schumer, who's just done a review of um, a new documentary about Jacques Cousteau called Becoming Cousteau. And this is, this is hot off the press. It's only recently been released, but really fascinating stuff, um, looking at his history and from a slightly different angle at... Uh, how he, I guess, came to terms with the fact that a lot of his earlier work was sponsored by major oil companies and sort of how that sort of changed him, I guess, and ultimately led to him becoming a conservationist. So we'll put a link to uh, – Tim's done a review. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook yeah. page. Have a look at it. Yeah. I'm going to try and track that one down too. Um, I've got a, another reach out from Noel Forsyth, who um, is a, a, a Triple R subscriber and uh, a Marinara fan and uh, is very interested in whales and whale migration. So I'm going to save this one because he's got a few questions in here that I think I'd better put to Dave Donnelly yeah, when we get him on the Dave. phone. Yeah. Um, anything from you, Dr Beach? Uh, just one cool little paper I found in Science. This is on otters uh, in the Vancouver region. Otters.
plotters were harvested, harvested, terrible word, killed en masse, murdered uh, for their pelts. That has stopped in recent decades and the otters are coming back. Otters forage for invertebrates, for worms, crabs, all sorts of stuff in what they call eelgrass over there. Kind of the same as the seagrass we have here in Western Port Bay, Zostra, things like that. Um, when the otters come back into these eelgrass beds because they're foraging around for stuff, it kind of, kind of mixes up the eelgrass a little bit. And what that does is it encourages the eelgrass to have sex more. So they're having getting a lot more genetic diversity. So when you don't have the otters there, you don't get enough genetic, mm. di- genetic diversity in the eelgrass. And then when they come back, it's all happy days. Eelgrass are flat out at it. And... Um, producing nice genetically diverse babies. So oh, cool. a really great ex- example, I think, of how everything's intertwined. Yeah. The birds, the bees and the otters. Yep. Who would have thought? Hey, another quick one, which um, I'm, I'm going to try and follow up next week, I think. This is really exciting stuff. It, this one really is uh, for our Western Australian listeners and subscribers because we know that you're out there. Um, big plug for a local group called Ocean Heroes and what they've done and what they do, and I'm really keen to speak with them. They've helped nearly 5,000 children in Western Australia with autism experience the thrill of riding a wave since the surfers founded the company as volunteers in 2016. And they're, uh, they're doing a lot of work closely in hand with RTRFM, which I think we could probably call Triple R PBS's um, sibling station in Perth. And uh, really, really great stuff that they're doing, helping uh, to improve confidence and social skills of kids on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. So taking kids surfing and, and uh, helping them experience the joy of that. Very nice. Isn't it wonderful? So, yeah. um, uh, look, I think it's just wonderful what they're doing. They're trying to raise some funds. Um, so I'll put a link to what they're doing uh, on our Facebook page for Ocean Heroes. Last year they raised $25,000. They're looking to top that this year. So there was a, a launch event yesterday, um, but we'll uh, we'll put some links to that, as I said, on our Facebook page and, and look to help them raise some more money because it's really wonderful. And, you know, who knows, maybe spread what they do. To, uh, to the eastern part of this country. That's right. We have disabled surfers. Our own Dr. Surfers talked about that a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a different beast. Yeah. Hey, we just had a quick phone call from Robert. Thank you, Robert, for calling through, letting us know. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this one, Dr. Beach. It's um, in Tasmania, um, uh, something that's happening where uh, people are harvesting uh, seaweed and feeding it to cattle in order to reduce methane levels that are produced by cattle. Have heard of that. There was a, the, the, the I think we talked about it yeah. a long time ago. There's somebody whose name, I forget, is Rocky or something. Um, scientists, I feel very embarrassed, I forget his name, in Queensland has done a lot of work on that. And there oh, are certain is that species, Rocky Denise? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certain, species of, um, certain species of red alga, which when fed to cattle, reduce the fart factor. Oh, we we got to get Rocky on the show. I yeah. did some work with him years ago. We should. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks, Robert, for letting us know. That's wonderful. All right, Neil Blake, are you there? Yep. Fart, fart factor is a hard act to follow. That's <laughs> <laughs> our dear baykeeper. How are you going, Neil? I'm um, pretty good, actually, Dr. Beach. Uh, good, to, good to be with you again. That's lovely. Hear your dulcet tones. I was about to say exactly the same about your voice. <laughs> hey, well, Neil. 
Tell us uh, what you've been up to. Being a Bulldogs fan, I'm, I'm doing my Aww. best. Oh, but you have one in 2016. You're, you're, you're happy for us to have a victory, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. People are going to start feeling sorry for Essendon supporters soon. No, Saints supporters, they need one, and then we can get back to a few more <laughs> Melbourne ones. <laughs> All right, Neil, let's get into it. You've been doing some great work with some research students um, and looking at migration patterns of snapper around the bay and potential connections to microplastics. Is that, did I frame that correctly? Yeah, well, it's pretty much uh, it, Ron. Uh, it's, it takes a while for the penny to drop because I've been looking at a satellite image of, uh, of the bay, which shows the, the Yarra plume, uh, which is a brown smudge that sort of uh, creeps around the northeastern coastline down to around about Bay Morris and filters into the Carrum Bight. Uh, and clearly that's where much of the stuff coming out of the Maribyrnong and Yarra catchments are. Uh, uh, travels and that also just coincidentally happens to be where the main snapper concentrations is. In fact, the Carrum Bight is uh, the major spawning ground for snapper on each year. So uh, yeah, it took, just took a while for that to sort of sink in. But then I went after we'd um, uh, completed in Bay Blueprint report, which uh, estimated two billion microplastics coming out of the Yarra and Maribyrnong annually. Uh, and uh, noting that uh, the coincidence with these uh, snapper aggregations on an annual basis, uh, uh, it seemed like something that uh, was worthy of a little bit of follow-up. So uh, we were fortunate to recruit a couple of wonderful students from RMIT University to, to do some more research on that. So the first thing that I'm thinking is the you've got um, there's a couple of things. One is that there's a number of different sources uh, of input into Port Phillip Bay. So you've mentioned the Maribyrnong and the Yarra. There's also the Werribee River, Patterson River, uh, and lots of sort of smaller tributaries that that go in there. So um, yeah. I guess that would be the first thing. But also that I'm also thinking about other things that are coming through those two major waterways. In addition to the microplastics, you're going to have potentially nutrients and all sorts of stuff coming through as well. That's correct. In fact, there was a lovely uh, sewer overflow in the Darabin Creek uh, yesterday. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows what might be in that amongst a whole host of cosmetics and various other things. Yeah, it does tend to happen after uh, he very heavy rains, which is what we've just had the last couple of days. So yeah. what, what did your students do? What did they have a look at? Oh, well, one of the key things is, you know, if we wanted to um, uh, assess the risk of, or the probability of snapper ingesting microplastics, uh, you need to think about what how their feeding behaviour. And, uh, you know, so uh, we've been looking at uh, uh, research studies that uh, talks about what sort of stuff they eat. And uh, they seem to have quite a varied diet, but also there's likely to be... Um, uh, their diet will change at different age classes too. So the younger snapper have different feeding habitats than, than the adults. So Neil, you say varied diet habits. So young ones eat what in comparison to old ones? Uh, well, um, is some research from the, back in the uh, 1980s uh, in Port Phillip Bay said the young ones eat crabs and small crustaceans and polychaete worms and mollusks whereas the largest snapper uh, mainly consume mollusks, and particularly um, blue mussels. Because they, they have kind of like sort of crunching teeth a bit, don't they? Like they, they, they can munch. It's a long time since I've been 
handle yeah, the snapper right. since so I've been snapper fishing. I'm just trying to remember that. From the point teeth. of view of the um, plastics, you know, then uh, there might be some that, that have different buoyancy. So there'll be uh, some that are sort of floating in the water column, which, so if uh, any fish, for example, that uh, preying on the species in the, in the water column might uh, inadvertently uh, take in those plastics that are there as well. Uh, or though, particularly though any fish that are eating uh, mollusks, uh, such as the filter feeders, there may be um, particularly nanoplastics and the very small uh, uh, synthetic fibres that, that could be taken in by those filter feeders that will then be passed on to the fish. So there's a, there's a range of considerations, and we don't want to sound alarmist about it, but it, I'm just raising that if we've got an enclosed waterway such as Port Phillip Bay, which is a major uh, attraction for recreational anglers, then we need to be thinking in, down, down the track a little bit as to the potential for uh, bioaccumulated plastics uh, being passed on to the human population. So how are you going to measure it? Are you taking snapper and you're looking at the, the, the contents of their guts and then putting them under a microscope trying to find microplastics? Uh, no, we, we can't get it to that stage. Uh, this is really, a, you know, like a two-month student placement. So we're just uh, um, getting a bit of an overview of the situation, which uh, to start a conversation more than anything. So you mentioned uh, in terms of um, potential patterns from recreational anglers in the bay, Neil, and uh, I mentioned at the start of the show some work that you've been doing with it's Albert Park Yachting and Angling Club as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that work, that partnership work that you're doing? Yeah, well, what what we did was put together a, a survey. Uh, we, we wanted a, a recreational anglers catch and consumption uh, snapshot, I suppose, So uh, and to find out which parts of the bay anglers um, uh, primarily fish in or whether they fish all around the bay uh, and also you know what time of year they fish uh, how often once you know how many times a month or how many times a week and uh, how often they uh, eat f- fish that are caught in the bay just to get a bit of an overview of that of that uh, situation so the the angling club have been very helpful in uh, helping to frame that survey but also distributing it amongst their members and will this work continue on, Neil? Well, I would hope so. As I said, Bron, it's really just uh, starting a conversation because uh, it's, it took a while, as I said before, for the penny to drop for, for me. That, but particularly our microplastic surveys on beaches showed the highest concentrations in, in sites around the bay were in with that between Carrum and uh, Williamstown, which is, once again, where the uh, major snapper aggregation occurs each year. Yeah, fascinating stuff. You do so much wonderful work down the, the um, at the Port Phillip Eco Centre down at St Kilda. It reminds me, Neil, I mean, do you need people helping you down there? Do you, I mean, do, do you need donations? Should we be calling out for people to shower you with money? And if, if they wanted to, how could they do that? I don't know about showering. <laughs> but obviously, yes, it's a, it's a, always a, you know, a work in progress and uh, we, we're just uh, trying to put our best foot forward on education and uh, uh, advance our understanding of what's going on in the environment and, uh, and finances does actually help in that regard. So donations would be greatly appreciated, yes. And how do people contact you if they want to find out what you do and if they did want to chuck a bit of money at you? Oh, well, the best, um, you know, obviously the Echo Centre website is uh, designed to uh, give people an overview of all of the exciting things that we are doing. 
and also has uh, a facility on that uh, in there too to, to make donations if people wish to. Brilliant. And I'll just mention that our, our students will be will be actually giving a presentation on this topic on October 26th at 5:30 between 5:30 and 6:30 p.m. So uh, that, that um, people might be interested in uh, logging on. It'll be a webinar type uh, uh, activity. And, uh, yeah, just to hear what's happening. And it will also include the discussion about synthetic turf that I've been monitoring up in the, in the reservoir area uh, and linking with the friends of Darabin Creek who are working. They've also got some uh, social work students working with them on the values of uh, natural areas and waterways for urban populations. I put a photo up um, on our Facebook page to to sort of promote today's show, Neil, with you uh, holding uh, a, a container full of that synthetic turf that got pulled out of one of our local creeks. It was Darabin or Mary, I can't remember which one. That's so, right, yeah. Yeah. So uh, October 26th from 5.30 till 6.30pm, um, the students yeah. you've been talking about will be presenting their work and uh, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page if people want to, uh, to get along and have a listen to it. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. But for, for, yeah, people, be great. for people who don't do Facebook, so again, the, the address is the St Kilda Eco Centre. Is that what they put in their favourite search engine? Uh, Port Phillip Eco Centre. Port Phillip Eco Centre. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good one. We'll get the details to them somehow. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for all your great work and uh, come on the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Roll on 2022, hey? <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Neil. We'll catch you soon. Good on you. Okay, bye for now. Neil Black there, our baykeeper. Our very own baykeeper, Neil. Yeah. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune into Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Hey, thanks, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's cross to Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia and the Dolphin Research Institute. Good morning, Dave. Uh, good morning, Brian and Dr. Beach. How are we? Morning, Dave. We're well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Excellent. Hey, we're going to get into this Dolphin Research Institute catalogue um, in just a second. Just briefly, any updates on whale migration patterns over the last week? Um, yeah, there is actually. We, we, I did mention last week we, we started to see the first of the cow-calf pairs arriving on our coast for this year. Um, and that, um, that situation has accelerated considerably. There's multiple cow-calf pairs of humpback whales now on the Victorian coastline. And uh, from what we understand in southern New South Wales, we've got a lot more to come yet. Very exciting stuff. It's all... I mean, it's the sort of thing you'd expect every year, but when it when it actually happens and you see these babies starting to make make their way back down south, does it does it ever get less thrilling for you? I don't think it gets less thrilling for anybody, really. Yeah. It's um, it's just amazing uh, to see, even through the eyes of others. You know, we're we're all sort of locked down at the moment, can't get out to where we'd like to be to be able to experience what our favourite things are, whether it be the bush or the ocean or, or the city. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's just fantastic to be able to, to say that that's a success story. We, we did a good thing in the, the assessment of whaling back in 1978, and we see these populations coming back really strong in the case of humpback whales. So it's just so pleasing to see. And the other, the, other, the other way we've got down here is the southern right, of course, Dave. I mean, how's that bounce back in comparison to the humpback? 
Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question, Dr. Beach. It's um, for Victoria and the southeast uh, region of, of Australia. There's really very little, if any, evidence of a bounce back. There's certainly calves being born. The survivorship is unknown, and the population seems to be a bit stagnant. But if you look across into the uh, Great Australian Bight and into Western Australia, um, and add them to the mix, the population, or sorry, the species, uh, is actually doing fairly well. But it's just this southeast corner that there's a little bit of concern around. Because the Southern Right, they, they hang out down at sort of the bottom bit of Australia. They don't go up uh, the left and the right side of the, you know, the, the, the west and the east coast like the, the humpbacks do. They come up from Antarctica, hang out, and they do their family business in the bite and around the southern bits and then head back down to Antarctica. Is that right? For the most part, that's true. You do get the odd uh, exception to the rule. Uh, Exmouth is a well-known place for at least one or two southern right whales to carve, and Harvey Bay in Queensland is another. But you're right, the majority of the, the population uh, or populations uh, are uh, sort of really centred around that south coast of Australia and, and really in huge numbers around the Great Australian Bight and then back down that sub-Antarctic to Antarctic region to feed in the off-season. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Noel reach out to us, Dave, talking, uh, he's saying he's particularly fascinated by the blue whales over near Portland, the Bonnie Upwelling, and is keen for a segment on that. So I thought I'd just pass that one on to you and um, we'll, we'll organise that at some time in the future, if you're happy to do that. Oh, look, look, I might even handle you over to Dr. Peter Gill, who's been studying that region for about 30 years now, um, done some fantastic work um, compiling a whole ec- ecological study on blue whales and the krill and the bonny upwelling itself and what that generates and what it supports and the huge numbers of predators that, uh, that congregate there annually. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, we'll line that one up um, maybe with yourself and also with, uh, with Peter. That would be great. All right. Let's get uh, let's get straight into um, this catalogue that we've been talking about the um, the the catalogue. Let's go. <laughs> yes, the, the catalogue, a first of its kind uh, for Victoria, a publicly available, publicly interpretable. Uh, a unique species of, um, of dolphin that is that has colonised Port Phillip since about 2005, and they're called common dolphins. Um, they're restricted to an area uh, which is relatively small, about 18 kilometres of coastline between Mount Martha-ish, Dramana-ish, to uh, Mornington-ish. Uh, and those animals have, uh, well, first discovered in 2005, as I said, but we're only about 13 or so in numbers, as best we can tell. Um, we've just recently been working through the catalogue over the last few months, tens and tens of thousands of images, hundreds of hours of work, and uh, we've now reached a total, this is a great success story, I've got to put, put it in first, that these animals are now about 70 in number. Um, that includes animals which we believe are likely to be transients coming to and from the bay, um, presumably to help with that genetic mixing and keep that, that population sustainable. So we're super excited to release the catalogue, um, as I say, publicly. It's available on the Dolphin Research Institute website as a online ebook, or you can request a copy, a PDF, and have it in your own library if you like. It's it's just I'm really pleased with that piece of work. We're really happy. Oh, it's great. I was uh, saying at the start of the show, I was having a look through it yesterday, and you know, it's definitely not the case that you've seen one dorsal fin. You've seen them all. Once you actually look at them and compare them side by side, you really do see the the differences. And some of them aren't subtle either. They're actually quite obvious when you look at them. And I guess if you're going out there and looking at these animals every day, and and this is the key thing that you're using in order to identify these individual animals, uh, it's the sort of thing, do you find that with you and with the people who you work with, it becomes easier the more you do it? 
It does, although as the population grows, you get more animals with less features on their dorsal fins because, simply because they're young. So they're hard to catalogue. So 70 is our minimum number. We've got a bunch of animals which we're still trying to uh, separate from others. So it's an ongoing piece of work. And, and the thing with this catalogue is, and what we've discovered through our work with the state government and through consultancy, is that discoverable documentation that is current is hard to come by. There's a lot of published papers along the line which you can look at and they're typically several years old because it takes so long to, to publish these days. But something that is uh, contemporary, accessible, usable and thorough, QAQC process has gone over it. You can pick that up and that is now what we would call a baseline for the conservation and understanding and management of this little, uh, what we're calling a common dolphin community or unit of animals. Um, never before has that really existed and been so accessible and written in such a way that a 10-year-old can pick it up and understand what it means. Um, whereas previously, in a scientific language, has been used, and it's really hard to, to really uh, get your head around it sometimes. So this is the idea behind it, to engage communities, get people involved, have them compare their own photos to the catalogue and perhaps submit those photos to us as a citizen science initiative. Yeah, definitely. If you've been out there um, and uh, and taken your own photos of some dorsal fins, you can actually compare what you've taken against that catalogue and, and potentially identify the animal that you've seen. Dave, we'll have to move on. Just to let you know, we've already put a link to that on on our Facebook page for the promotion of today's show. If you uh, click on the, the photo that I've put up there of the front page of the catalogue, um, it'll take you to that photo and then there's a link straight there uh, so people can download it for themselves. But as Dr Beach rightly pointed out, not everyone is connected to Facebook. So what would be another way that people could access it? Yeah, simply go straight to the Dolphin Research Institute website, which is www.dolphinresearch.org.au. Um, swing by there and it'll be, just scroll down and it'll be very prominent. That front cover you just spoke about is the link. Um, go through it, have a read, see if you'd like to have a copy. Um, we look forward to many more people getting involved, but I will just put a little caveat in there and say, if you are on the water, be sure to maintain a respectable distance, and that's 100 metres uh, for vessels and 300 metres for jets. We had an incident last week which made front page news, which we're very disappointed about and trying to work through right now, uh, people harassing dolphins on a sea do. So uh, we're looking forward to better behaviour with uh, our next initiative, which is dolphin distancing. Excellent. We'll catch up with you soon on that one and talk at that, about that one at length, Dave. Uh, yeah, it's super important and really disappointing to hear I hadn't heard about that one. So, yep. All right. Have a good time in the meantime and we'll catch you soon. Good on you guys. Have a great day and thanks for having us on again. Always a pleasure. Bye now. See you, Dave. Bye for now. See ya. Uh, Dave Donnelly there from uh, Dolphin Research Institute this time. Yeah, wonderful stuff. And yeah, lovely that the, well, fascinating with the dolphins. You can tell the difference between the dorsal, dorsal fins. We didn't get time to ask him, but I'm wondering, are they scars? He said that they accumulate with age. So is it damage, a bit of a punch on, whatever. Yeah. Let's do that next time. Yeah, we will. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en Tres Triple R. En Tres Triple R is indeed where you are. Now, back in August, just before Radiothon, we caught up with Professor Dustin Marshall from Monash University's Centre for Geometric Biology about hyperallometry, where reproduction in fish is not only disproportionate as fish get bigger, but the relationship between fish size and egg production is actually exponential. We spoke with the revolutionary change in thinking that hyperallometry brings to the potential efficiencies in fisheries management around the world. To resume that conversation now, it's with great pleasure that we welcome back to Triple R, Professor Dustin Marshall. Good morning, Dustin. Welcome back. 
Morning, Bron. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, great to have you back with us. Now, for listeners who missed our last chat with you, um, I've talked briefly about hyperallometry, but I'm wondering if we can just talk uh, briefly or I can ask you about why it's such a big paradigm shift in what we know about how fish reproduce. Sure. So it, it really is just a fancy word for describing the fact that uh, larger fish, a four-kilo fish, produces many more eggs than two two-kilo fish. So it's just this disproportionate um, effect. Now, the reason it's a big deal is oftentimes fisheries managers don't necessarily know how big the fish out in the population are. They just know that there's this many tons of fish in the population. So what they do is do a simple maths workaround where they assume there's a proportionate relationship between the tonnage of fish out there and the number of babies they'll have. We show that that proportionate relationship doesn't occur and that therefore messes up the math for the entire model. And when we left off speaking last time, we were talking about the implications of hyperallometry for fisheries management, which is exactly what you've been exploring in some recent publications by yourself and some colleagues from various universities around the world. Um, and we had a lot to pack into a small amount of airtime, but we can expand on that now. It's such important work. So I'm really keen to explore this in more detail. Um, I wanted to ask you first up about your co-authors, because this isn't sort of research just, just come out of Melbourne or out of Australia. This is sort of a collaborative exercise from researchers in different parts of the world. Can you tell us about your co-authors? Yeah, so um, there's one, uh, the, the co-first author is from Australia, Michael Bode, who's up in Queensland. Uh, but then we have Mark Mangle, who uh, is an uh, elder statesman of fisheries biology, um, who's based in uh, the University of Washington. Um, he's involved in a bunch of fisheries boards. Uh, Robert Arlinghouse is um, a leader in recreational fisheries research in Germany. And um, uh, Edward J. Dick, is uh, he's actually part of NOAA, the federal, um, U.S. Fed, federal government regulatory agency for monitoring um, and researching fisheries. So it was an international team, and actually all of the species included in our study weren't from Australia. They were um, the 33 largest fisheries um, on the planet that we could find data for. That's a key point in that we don't actually have a lot of data for many of the Australian fisheries in terms of stock assessment. Yeah, and this really gets to the, the guts of it, doesn't it, in terms of... So you've looked at some of the, the th largest fisheries in the world. Uh, and what proportion of those fisheries have actually uh, underestimated uh, the, the reproductive potential of some of their larger fish? Unfortunately, it's all of them. So um, all of the major fisheries uh, in, their, in their principal stock assessments, all of them make this linear assumption that uh, catch uh, is set by... And the way I describe it um, is that, in essence, the stock assessment determines what the safe speed you should do is. Um, and when you make the wrong assumptions, what, what it looks like is that your speedo is saying that you're doing 100 kilometres an hour when actually you're doing 180 kilometres an hour. So th these assessments were giving sort of uh, a thumbs up to the yields that they were, they were aiming for when actually uh, these were much too high. And on average, it was around twofold too high. So a couple of questions that, are, that sort of come to me straight away is around what fisheries managers are doing. So we've just established that uh, pretty much all the fisheries in the world are underestimating the reproductive um, potential of their larger fish. What should they be doing, Dustin, in terms of protecting these fish? And how do you know where the size cutoff is likely to be? So um, we, we explored a couple of different scenarios for that. So the first thing they need to do is actually measure um, the size distribution of fish out in the population um, 
in that uh, it turns out that, that that size distribution is really important for informing um, what's going on in that population in terms of how much catch um, is occurring. If you don't have data on how reproduction works in any one particular species, we provide a rule of thumb estimate based on all the data that we have um, for fisheries worldwide, and, and we could leverage earlier work of that, um, including almost 400 species. Um, so I think that if, as long people know the size distribution of fish from the catches that people are making, so they can use that to make these estimates. As to how we should protect these larger fish, we don't really care how you do it. We explore a couple of different options, but really the, the, the idea here is that you just need to create a reservoir of large fish. How you do that is controversial, but the two um, ways we explored um, using our models was the creation of marine protected areas and uh, using what's called harvest slots. That's where you only get to harvest within a size range. So uh, many people who fish are used to a minimum size that you have to throw back. We explored the option of also including a maximum size. So anything above that you have to throw back. The marine protected area approach was very efficient at generating uh, greater yield. So creating that large reservoir of fish, that actually enhances the amount of catch you get in terms of the tonnage you get in the harvest slot approach, um, that was less effective at generating lots of yield, but it did allow you to catch more fish. So if, if the objective is that everyone gets to catch a fish, even if it isn't particularly large, um, then the harvest slot approach is, is quite good. I should also note that the marine protected area approach we used was very generic. We were working across 32 different species, and so we had to be um, very vague about the assumptions we used, many of those require much more testing. And when we applied it in a much uh, stronger framework, the benefits of MPAs were still there. They were just not quite as strong. Dustin, it's Dr. Beach here. Are there, are there any fisheries so far at, at, the, at the moment where there is a maximum size for the fish that you can take? There are harvest slot limits in some recreational fisheries um, in Europe. Uh, I'm not aware of as many uh, in Australia, but uh, it's certainly an idea that's out there that you throw back fish of a certain size if they're too big. And of course, there are lots of crustacean-based fisheries where you don't uh, keep the buried females, for example. There's a habit of throwing those back, and that's certainly contributed to uh, the sustainability of those fisheries. One thing I found fascinating about what you've been doing, Dustin, is just that concept that while fisheries managers are overestimating the ability of their fish stocks to replenish themselves, the marine parks managers are underestimating the value of the large female fish in supplying fish in future generations. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that we're, we're, we're making a big mistake on. Oftentimes, MPAs are presented as a conservation option that have no uh, fisheries upside, really, and it's always... Uh, an either-or kind of argument, we see that for certain species, particularly long-lived species, slow-growing, long-lived, there are enormous yield benefits from establishing MPAs. So even if you've got a very cold-eyed, uh, only wanting to maximise yield, let's say you're, you're a fisheries um, a person who only wants to maximise yield, then actually in some instances, MPAs are the most effective way of doing that. You can actually massively bump up the amount of catch that you get in the long run.
And you can see that there's evidence of that, that uh, as, as much as, uh, you know, particularly whenever there's a discussion about marine protected areas, that the first group to get up and protest are the recreational fishing sector. But then once you have these marine parks established, what do they do? They all go and hang around outside the boundaries of the marine parks in their boats. And you see that, like we can see that right now. It's, uh, you can see it down at near Ricketts Point. Um, and, uh, and it happened in New Zealand, you know, 25, 30 years ago when their first marine parks were set up. It was the first thing that happened after a few years because it's quite obvious that's where you get these spillover effects. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think actually one of the things that we've been making a mistake on is by not enforcing these as well as we could, we're not getting the reservoir build-up that we could actually benefit from such that there's more uh, positive effects for the fisheries. So I think that we're, we're in a negative feedback loop in that fisheries, uh, MPAs uh, are not necessarily as well enforced as they could be. They're not as large as they could be. So no one's seeing those benefits. So there's less public support for establishing them among some sections of the community. But actually, I think if we did a better job of communicating that there are enormous benefits over the sort of hill of slight declines in the first few years because you are locking up an area, I think actually then we could garner more support for these sorts of activities. Dustin, this line of research is fascinating. Um, you've got a great Twitter thread, uh, which you've already sent me the link to, and I will put that on our Facebook page so people can go and have a look because it really outlines the the story, the narrative of what it is that you've been doing and, and explains it really clearly. Um, and i uh, love to have you back on the show again for a third time and talk about where this research is going next. Thanks, Bron. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Dustin. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Professor Dustin Marshall from Monash University. Fascinating stuff. And, and, and what I was going to ask him but didn't have time was that, like, fish, the longer they, the, the older they get, they still continue to reproduce. It's not like many mammals. So this is a really important thing in that whole equation. That's right. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Uh, yes, you're on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Um, the Australian government recently launched a national plastics plan to reduce plastic waste. Um, whether or not it's going to be effective or not, I've got um, very fortunate this morning to have Tanvir Ajil from um, Deakin University from the Blue Carbon Lab who's just had a letter published in Science about this. Good morning, Tanvir. Good morning. How are you? Yes, good. How are you today? I'm very well. Um, first of all, this, uh, the national plan to um, reduce plastics, just a couple of important things about that. Australia, I was astounded to read the letter which you've had published in Science, which is a great thing. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, that Australia, we are the second most wasteful pl um, country on earth with reduced with respect to plastics. We use 59 kilos per person per year, and we only recycle about 18% of that. They're pretty damning figures, aren't they? Uh, it is. Uh, it's, it's a very bad figure. So, in, in general, plastic is a global problem, and our understanding is in Australia, the West plastic is not very bad, bad issue at all. But recent data figures in infograph indicates like Australia is the second largest country to consume single-use plastic per person per year. That is, you mentioned 59 kg is very very big number, and recycle rate is very low, less than 20%. So, yeah, we, we, we need to act now to get some good results to safeguard our environment and ocean. And what, what, are the th what are some of the things that you suggest we do to act on this? I mean, you do point out in the letter that the National Plastics Plan, which I said the government's launched, a lot of this relies on industry to self-regulate and look after itself. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, there, there are lots of uh, plans and targets 
that should be achieved within 2025, that means within the next four years. But the problem is maximum plants are voluntary. That means industry will act by themselves and we cannot impose any legal action against them if they are failed to do so. So our suggestion here was to implement some interim goal. Okay, we will achieve this particular target within that particular day or year or month. And if we are failed here, then we can do some alternatives. But unfortunately, this uh, National Plastic Plan doesn't implement or mention anything about short-term goal. It's rather very big overarching goal. So our suggestion is to, okay, make some interim goal, make some measurable targets, and what happens if we have failed to do so? And can we implement any incentives for new industry, or can you put some penalties or punishment if current uh, industrial targets are not achieved? Something like that. Tanvir, it's Bron. I'm just wondering, is do you think one of the problems that we have is uh, that we have three tiers of government here in Australia? So in terms of wh- whose responsibility it is to regulate this, we have a national uh, responsibility at one level. We also have state, then we also have local. And, and I've just observed there are different initiatives that are created through each of these different levels of government. The fact that we have these three levels of government, sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't. Is that part of the problem, do you think? Uh very good question and very good comment. I say, yeah, that's a, that's a, and that's another issue. Like uh, recently, minister from Department of Environment in every jurisdiction or state or territory meet, and they promise to work together. And every state level or territory level have some own plan or policy, but now they will act together to make it harmonic, so that throughout the country every standard or every measurable indicator should be exactly the same. But the issue is they are, they are just, this is the beginning of big initiatives and they are trying to make promise that they will do, but I'm not sure like it will take a long time to make a harmonic system throughout the country. Yeah, indeed. Um, Tanvir, we, we have to wrap it up, unfortunately. I'm sorry. But, but can you just, just in a couple of minutes, tell us what, why you've written this letter. Uh, you're a postdoc in the, um, the Blue Carbon Lab at Deakin University, working on coastal plastics, I believe. Yes. So uh, you will see the plastics is everywhere in the world nowadays. In, in Australia in particular, we are releasing or discharging around uh, 100 30,000 tons of plastic in ocean every year from Australia. So it's a big number. So my research is indicating or searching like before discharging to the ocean, we have very vast coastline and containing mangroves, seagrass, and tidal marsh. So my research is seeking, okay, what kind of plastics are available or what kind of plastic can those coastal wetlands consume or absorb or sink? before releasing to the ocean. So this coastal wetland can act as a buffer or natural sink of plastic. So we are not saying that you you can discharge plastic, rather we are saying, okay, this coastal wetland can act as a barrier to discharge plastic to the ocean. So my research is all about coastal wetland and to see what kind of plastic they can absorb or sink. Fascinating stuff. And as I said, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I'd love to get you back on the show um, in coming months when you've got a bit more data to share with us. But, um, yeah, thank you very much, um, Tanvir Ajil from um, Deakin University from the Blue Carbon Lab for talking about your work and that recent lady which you've had in science. Congratulations on that. Yeah, 
My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Tanvi. Tanvir Adjel there from the Blue Cloud Carbon Lab at uh, Deakin University. Thanks to him. Thanks to Dustin Marshall from Monash University, Dave Donnelly from Dolphin Research Institute, Neil Blake from uh, the Port Phillip Eco Centre. Big show, Dr Beach. A huge show. And thanks to you. Uh, it's a complete thanks. pleasure, Bron. <laughs> thanks to Nerida. Thanks to Kent, who will have this show up as a podcast at some time this morning and uh, on next week's program. Um, Farm will be in, as well as Rex. Uh, don't know what we're going to be talking about just yet. Who knows? Who knows? Lots of stuff, as always. Hey, stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Panel Beta is there. I'm not sure who else he's got in today, but we'll find out in a couple of minutes. And uh, followed by Shane with the Einstein and GoGo team. Have a wonderful Sunday. And thank you again to everyone who subscribed through the 2021 Radiothon. It, uh, it means the world to us. And uh, we look forward to bringing another year of uh, great radio for you. Indeed. Thank you, everybody who's supported the program and Back the show. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.